Um, it's really easy to get lost in one verse somewhere or get lost in one passage that might be uh, the topic of the message um, and lose sight of the big picture. And so that's the challenge I have in preparing messages is try to keep everything kind of uh, focus on what we're looking at that day, but also keep in mind what the book is saying. So not only would I encourage you to read Revelation on your own, but I would also encourage you to read uh, portions of, of uh, other apocalyptic literature like the book of Zechariah and the book of Daniel, uh, too, because a lot of what is, what is talked about there uh, plays in heavily to understanding Revelation as we get into chapters 4 and following uh, in Revelation. You know, if you go to a movie theater... Uh, you have to sit there before the movie you've gone to see starts, and you have to watch what are called uh, previews. You have to watch them trying to promote other movies that are coming out. And you sit there and, and you make a mental note, well, that's, that's one I'm definitely not going to see. Or maybe you'll say, well, that looks like a pretty good movie, and I'm going to see that. And the reason they do that is they want to spark interest in what is coming up. What's going to be playing uh, coming soon to a theater near you, right? That's why they do that. In the book of Revelation, John is kind of doing something along those lines. He's kind of giving a bit of an introduction here to spark people's interest in what is coming. These are the coming attractions, if you will, particularly in our text today in verses 4 through 8. He gives a brief and simple yet meaningful greeting to the seven churches. Now, each one of those churches, as you know, is going to be addressed individually by John. And he's got a lot of stuff that he's going to say to each one. And we'll be looking at each one of those individually in the coming weeks. And then following that greeting, he'll go into the other portions of Revelation that are a bit confusing, I suppose, to many people. But they do have meaning, and there is an important message in all of that for us, for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you with your Bibles open, stand with me this morning as we read chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray together. Father, as we open our Bibles this morning to look at this great text of Scripture, we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and open our minds, and let us receive from you the message that you would have us to know. We pray it now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Be seated, please. 
Well, first of all, in this passage, we see the witness of Christ. Christ came for a witness of what? He came for a witness to His heavenly Father. The God of the Old Testament was largely, but not totally, but largely unknowable by people. Uh, God tended to speak to people at various times and in various ways, but there wasn't a consistent way that the God of the Old Testament spoke to everyday people. You might see Him speak to someone, and then there might not be a record of Him speaking to anyone else for a long period of time after that. So this was not common. But Jesus Christ was sent by God, born of a virgin, born of a woman, the Bible says, born under the law, and He came to be a witness, to bear witness of the Lord God. And furthermore, He came to die for the sins of the people. He is called the faithful and true witness. There wasn't any time that we have an example of Him bearing, say, false witness. Everything He bore witness to was always totally and completely true. In chapters 2 and 3, there are seven specific messages to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now, where is Asia Minor? Well, Asia Minor is basically what is modern-day Turkey. Now, the seven spirits that are mentioned here refers to the Holy Spirit. You say, well, what does it say seven? Well, seven, you'll remember, as I told you last time, numbers are very important, particularly in the book of Revelation. They're important throughout the Bible, but here we've got to understand the significance of number. And the number seven always signifies completeness. In fact, the number of God I mentioned before is the number seven. It signifies perfect and completeness, perfection and completeness. So the seven spirits refers to the Holy Spirit. The number seven depicts Him in His fullness or His completeness. Now even the word completeness is very important in the book of Revelation. As you read any portion of it or as you read the whole thing, think about completeness. Everything with God is complete. And Revelation is a picture of God completing everything that He set out to do originally, even before the foundation of the world. In these verses, there's a wonderful picture of the triunity or the trinity of God, Jesus, and His Holy Spirit. All are complete, all are bearing witness, even though Jesus Christ is kind of... um, Highlighted here by John in these verses. Specifically, he is called the faithful witness. He is called the firstborn from the dead. And he is called the ruler over the kings of the earth. So this is a highlighting of Christ here in particular. What do these things mean that he says? Well, first of all, his faithfulness is not in dispute. God is faithful. How do we understand faithfulness? Well, I don't know about you, but when I was in school, they used to give out awards for those who had not missed a day of school during that particular school year. We call those perfect attendance awards. In fact, I think it would be fair to say that those who received that award at the end of the year were faithful in their attendance. They were consistent. They were true 
in their attendance of school. Well, Jesus here is called the faithful, and he is called the true witness. His faithfulness is not in dispute. Second, he is the firstborn from the dead. Certainly others had risen from the dead. In fact, Jesus himself had raised some from the dead. Remember, uh, John chapter 11 gives the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. He'd been dead for, you know, a number of days. And he rose him up. He had raised Jairus' daughter, as the book of Mark records, from the dead. There were resurrections in the Old Testament. Elijah and Elisha, both those former prophets, rose people from the dead. So... Jesus wasn't the first person to ever raise up from the dead. But what Jesus is, is that He is preeminent amongst those who have ever risen from the dead. In all things, He is preeminent. Now, what does that mean? Let me give you an example. Several years ago, I ate at the famous Cattleman's Steakhouse in Oklahoma City. Widely known place right out there in the middle of the Oklahoma City stockyards. One of the interesting things, one of the first things I noticed there, there was a great big picture on the wall of President George H.W. Bush eating at Cattleman's Steakhouse. Now why on earth would they have put his picture up on the wall there? It wasn't because he was the first person to ever eat there. But he was probably the most famous and the most preeminent person to ever eat there. And that's why they wanted his picture on the wall. He actually had eaten there in the early 90s while he was president of the United States. So you see what preeminence means. Christ is preeminent over everything. Thirdly, John writes here, He is the ruler over the kings of the earth. In other words, his authority is supreme. There's no other person that holds the kind or the type or the sort of authority that Jesus holds. His name is, in fact, above every other important name. Now, if we were brainstorming here today and we tried to come up with as as many names of important people as we could, both living and dead, we could come up with the names of former presidents, kings and prime ministers, people that led this or led that. But all of those, he is saying here, take a back seat to the preeminent authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippian church, In Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, he told them, Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. John writes of the love that Jesus had for us, being so great that He died for us, 
even shedding His own blood. How many people would you die for in this world? Well, maybe you would die for a very close loved one. Maybe you would die for your kids. Maybe you would die for your spouse. Maybe you would would die for someone else that you love very much. But would you die for total strangers? Most of us wouldn't. Now, we might think that we would like to do that if called upon to do that. But probably in reality, most of us, most of the people in this world would not give their life for total strangers. But Jesus, was Jesus given his life for total strangers? Well, the Bible says he knew us even in our mother's womb. He loved us even there. He cared for us. He goes so far as to say that we are literally washed in his blood. We're not only covered by his blood, but we're washed in his blood. You know, the way we wash clothes is we saturate them in water and in a detergent. And through the process of washing, things are made clean. Well, we are washed. We are saturated. We have the blood applied to us to the point that we're completely covered, saturated, and taken care of, in other words, by the blood of Christ. John wrote in his first epistle, in chapter 1 and verse 7 of 1 John, But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses or purifies us from our sin. It brings to mind the great old hymn, Are you washed in the blood, in the precious blood of the Lamb? Why was this important? Why was this witness here of Jesus Christ so important at this particular point or this particular time in history. Well, I mentioned before, John wrote during the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian. And Domitian had made a push for people to address him as Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. Here you've got the head of the state at the head of everything. Those who the secular world would have certainly said was preeminent. And you got him seeking, in essence, worship for himself. And so here comes John along, and not only is John preaching and proclaiming Christ, he is saying that Christ is preeminent over you, Roman emperor. You're nothing compared to him. And so you can figure out real quick why he found himself stranded on a desert island somewhere. That's exactly what happened. Domitian saw him as a threat. Commentator George Eldon Ladd writes, In the face of this threatening situation, John reminded the churches of a fact which must ever be a touchstone for their conduct that back up all human political authority stands the sovereignty of him who is in fact, although unseen, he is ruler over the kings of the earth. doesn't make any difference who they are. doesn't matter if it's the current president, if it's the current king or the current prime minister. doesn't make any difference if they're uh, head of the UN. doesn't make any difference. He is, he will always, for all of time, be preeminent over every other authority that comes down the pike. 
But it has been true down through time. People have feared the state and they've feared their leaders. You know, think of all the people that some of these ones, these dictators and things have killed. Think of people like Saddam Hussein and you think of Hitler and you think of Stalin who didn't like opposition. And if you started speaking out against the state and carrying protest signs and marching or whatever and stood outside their house or their mansion or their complex or whatever, I mean, you'd be taken away, you'd be executed, and that'd be the end of it. That's how they silented, silenced disagreement. But imagine this. For all the fear that has been directed towards all of these leaders... You can look at it and you can say, why were people so afraid of them? The worst that they could do is take your life. And Jesus told us in the Gospels, He said, Fear not those who can kill the body and have nothing more that they can do to you. Don't fear them. Don't fear those kind of people. But fear rather the one who can destroy both the soul and spirit in hell. The, the other words, this earthly realm is nothing compared to the he- heavenly realm. We're told in Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly realm, in heavenly places. There's a spiritual war going on all around us. It's raging everywhere. And we may not see it, but we see the effects of it. It's kind of like the wind. You don't actually see the wind blowing, but you see the effects of it. You see a flag standing straight out on a flagpole. You can look out the window and you can see, well, it's windy today. You can't see the wind, but you see that flag out there. You see the trees moving and swaying back and forth. Well, this spiritual battle, we don't actually see it always, but we're seeing the effects of what's going on in the spiritual realm or in those heavenly places that Paul wrote about to the Ephesians. But this was a very real, this was a very real and present danger to the people that John originally wrote to here. It wasn't just in theory, it wasn't just in the spiritual realm. They were feeling it here. They were afraid to say anything. John, our leader, John the Apostle of the Lord, got banished, he got exiled, he got sent away to an island by himself because he wouldn't be quiet when it came to preaching and proclaiming the Lord and His preeminence. He spoke and he spoke with boldness and he spoke with authority. Down through time, people have feared though earthly leaders more than they have feared God and it's still true today. There are people all across this world in all the different countries, and all the different places that are afraid of their governments. They're afraid of uh, the police. They're afraid of the FBI. They're afraid of whatever, uh, however their government is structured. They're fearful. But we need not fear that as Christians, as believers it may, there may come a time where persecution becomes very great against the church, even right here in our own country. We don't know how, it'll, how bad it might be before the Lord comes back and before He takes His church out of here through the rapture. But we need to be ready and we need to be resolved 
knowing that it might get pretty bad. And we've got to be deciding right now before the persecution gets really hot against the church. Am I going to stand for God even if it costs me my life? Am I willing to do that? Am I willing to stand up? In other words, how strongly do I believe what I profess? How committed am I to all of this? Well, we see something of the level of the commitment of John and other early believers. In fact, out of the apostles of the Lord, John is probably the only one that actually died a natural death at an advanced age. The rest of them were all martyred. Would you be willing to be there? Would you be willing to be martyred if it come to that? The word martyr itself basically means to give a testimony to something. It's the ultimate testimony, but it is a testimony. Bearing witness of what has happened or what you believe. The latter part of verse 5 tells us that because of our position as Christians, we are kings and we are priests. A king is a ruler. A king is one who has authority. The king can basically say, let this be done, and other people scramble and they rush to make sure that it gets done. So what does it mean then that we're kings here? Can we do that? As long as you remember this, your authority is inside Christ. It's not total authority over everything except for the fact that it kind of is because Christ has authority over everything. And so if you're in Christ, your life is hidden with Christ in God, then in effect, you also have authority over all things. But you don't use that to contradict God and His Word. But you can say, I will not succumb to the powers of darkness in this. I will not be led astray by demons and by the darkness and by Satan himself. We have all authority also in Christ. Jesus said, I say to you that if you have faith, true faith, you can move mountains. If we have that kind of power and that kind of authority in Christ then why aren't we using it? Why are we not using it like the Lord intended for us to use that? Well, maybe it's because we're not always in tune with Him. You know, radio waves and and sound waves and television waves can be going through the air. But if we don't have a receiver to receive those things, we'll often miss those, right? We can turn a radio on, we can tune it into a station and listen to what it's broadcasting. But if we don't have a receiver, we're not in tune with it, even though those things are floating and and traveling through the air. We're not always in tune with God. God is saying a lot of things. His Word is saying a lot of things. He's speaking all day, every day to people. And He's speaking to situations. But are we in tune with what God is saying? Well, oftentimes we're not. We're also priests. We're not only kings, but we're priests. What is a priest? Well, a priest is someone who can go directly to God. 
Someone who doesn't have to have an intercessor. In fact, they're in essence the intercessor. You know, some, some religious groups believe that a person cannot go directly to God. Just an individual person, an individual Christian, a parishioner, cannot go directly to God and speak to Him. But they must go through a priest or an intercessor. And they then speak on their behalf. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 says, Peter speaking to believers, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people. Our standing is totally and, and radically different than it once was. When we were outside of Christ, our position was, was, was radically different than what it is now. But we have been brought near by what? By the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're no longer outside there somewhere, floating around and wondering and, and trying to find our way in the darkness and figure it all out. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so we can, as Hebrews said, we can go boldly. We can come boldly before the throne of God that we will find grace and help in our time or in our hour of greatest need. Our standing is radically different than it once was, and we owe it all to Jesus, who has total dominion over all things forevermore. Amen. The word amen used here basically means it is so, or it is true, it is right, it is correct. And so he says this here, and he caps it all off by further information saying, these things that I've just said, they are true. They are true. They are right. They are something you can bank on. The second thing we see here in our passage today, we saw the witness of Christ. We now see the second coming of Christ. Christ will return again. And we see this promise in verses 7 and 8. Now verses 7 and 8 are a picture, or they are a preview of the drama that will unfold in this book. As it describes many nearly indescribable things. Have you ever tried to describe the indescribable? It can become frustrating. Maybe you've been on vacation somewhere... And you've seen some really beautiful things, some really interesting things, breathtaking things. And you come back home, and you go back to work, and you're trying to, your, your co-workers say, well, how, how was your trip? And you say, oh my goodness, you would not believe what I saw. And you try to describe it. And you, you get frustrated because you can see it in your mind just like it was when you saw it while on your trip. But the person you're trying to describe it to, you can, you can just tell that they're not getting it. They, they're just not seeing the beauty that you can see right there in your mind. They can't see those majestic mountains. They can't see those waterfalls or those tall redwood trees. They can't see uh, Buckingham Palace the way that you did when you stood right there on the sidewalk and in front of it. How would it have been if you were John and you're trying to describe this? And like the Apostle Paul, you know, had a vision that says he was caught up to the third heaven and, 
And then he, he comes and he, he, he's, it's difficult for him to even try to describe the things that he saw. They were so great. But think about John here, the frustration he must have felt in many ways, trying to put into comprehensible terms here that which he didn't even comprehend himself. It was unimaginable. But verses 7 and 8 are a preview of the drama that will unfold in this book as it describes many nearly indescribable things. When John says here, behold, in verse 7, he is saying, listen up, pay attention. I'm about to say something very important here. Jesus would often say, he would say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, the way what Jesus meant by that was, if you can take it, here it is. Here's something very important. If you can handle the truth, here is the truth. John is saying here, behold, you need to listen up. You need to pay attention. This is important stuff. And what does he say then after he has their attention? He says, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Isn't that a glorious truth? That everything we do every day, we can get out of bed in the morning with the knowledge, with the promise that Jesus is coming. No matter what we're facing that day, no matter whether we have a flat on the way to work, or whether we run out of gas, or whether the car won't start, and no matter whether the boss yells at us at work, or the customer that we're dealing with is completely unreasonable and makes us want to just pull our hair out. It doesn't make any difference what we face on any given day. The truth that Jesus is coming is still there. And it's still real. Jesus is coming. That was the truth that He said. And everything in our entire lives, every day, every month, every year, is to be understood and lived through within the context that Jesus is coming again. The present tense of the verb here suggests that Jesus is already on His way. It's not like He's trying to convey that, well, way down the road here, hundreds of years, thousands of years, in fact, Jesus is coming again. No, the way that it's worded here, it's in the present tense as though He were saying Jesus is on His way. Hey, listen, i got something to tell you here. Jesus is on His way. That wouldn't be a bad way to witness in this world, to go out and tell people, Hey, brother, did you know that Jesus is on His way? Sister, i got some great news for you. Listen, Jesus is on His way. He's coming. He's not going to leave us here. This world is, is rotting away. This world, He says, is passing away. But Jesus said... Everything's going to pass away. Earth is going to pass away. But he says, my words, my truth, my statements, that which is eternal, is not ever going to pass away. It's here from now on. In fact, the whole idea of the second coming itself is just another thing about Christianity that the world seems to ridicule. You know, the world looks at Christians today, they look at believers, and they think we're strange anyway. 
They think we got some crazy ideas. They think we're closed-minded. They think we're, we're bigots because we're unaccepting of certain evil and sinful practices that they gladly embrace. But the thing of it is, is that when we start talking about, you know, the Lord, He's, he's going to come back. He's coming back in the clouds and every eye is going to see Him. Well, how well does that go over? with the world that we live in. Well, it sounds strange to them. It sounds strange to them. Very strange. Even though many of them believe strange, stranger things than that, that's okay somehow, to them anyway. Peter wrote, knowing this first, he wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying and asking, where is the promise of His coming? I thought you Christians said Jesus was coming back. Well, where is He? I don't see Him. Well, the Bible says He is coming with the clouds. All throughout the Old Testament, the clouds symbolized the presence of God. There are multiple different places where the clouds were symbolic at the point of the presence of God. Every eye is going to see Him, even those who hurt Him and ultimately killed Him, mainly the Jews who instigated His death. And we see that affirmed in several passages, including Zechariah 12, Acts chapter 2, and Acts chapter 3. In verse 8, we see the certainty of His coming. The words Alpha and Omega, what are those? Well, Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. If we were saying the same thing, and we were saying it in English, we would say here that I am the A to Z, or He is the A to to Z. Alpha and Omega, the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. His point is that he is the bookends of history. It says, I am the A to Z, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Just as Genesis and Revelation serve as the bookends of God's revealed Scripture to us, Jesus is is the first and last when it comes to history. You say, well, wait a minute, I don't remember Jesus being there in the beginning. Well, John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, says He was in the beginning with God and all things were created through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So He was indeed in the beginning there with God. He is the A to Z, the Alpha and Omega. He is almighty in creation. He is all-powerful or He is omnipotent. John MacArthur writes, Jesus came the first time in humiliation, but He will return in exaltation. He came the first time to be killed. He will return to kill His enemies. He came the first time to serve. He will return to be served. He came the first time as the suffering servant. 
He will return as the conquering king. The challenge the book of Revelation makes to every person is to be ready for his return. And that is indeed the challenge for us, to be ready for his return. Can you honestly say this morning that you're ready? Now, there's always a few things we'd still like to do. We're never quite ready for anything, are we? We may get ready to go for vacation, and right up to the last minute, we're still packing a few more things, still making a few more arrangements. We may prepare to go uh, on vacation from work, and we're asking someone a second and a third time, Oh, are you sure you've got this covered while I'm gone? And it seems like it's a constant process of getting ready for something. But I ask you this morning, and this is more important than whether or not you're ready for vacation or whether you're ready for retirement or you're ready to go have your blood drawn tomorrow morning. The question is this, are you ready for the Lord's return? Is your spiritual house in order this morning? Can you honestly say so? And how often do you think about that? I mean, the Lord's coming back. There's no doubt about that. And according to John here, he's already on his way. Why? Because God's got that all figured out. And there's a set time, there's a set point where the Lord will return. And that's known already to God and has been known for a long, long time. So are you ready for that whenever it may be? Is your life in order? If he came back today, what would he find your spiritual condition to be? What would he find the condition of your spiritual life? That's the important thing for us right there. That's how this passage applies to us. Is in light of all that Jesus is, and in light of all that he has done, where are you at today? What is your relationship with him? What is your status in Christ? Do you know Him as your personal Lord and Savior? Or are you just hoping and thinking and maybe and it's not really clear? Well, you can come this morning and you can commit your life to Him and you can be ready for His return. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before You in prayer this morning, we're so thankful, Lord, that You have laid out this map before us. And even though, Father, some of the symbols are difficult for us to understand, as we read these 22 chapters that comprise Revelation. Father, we fall back on what we do know. And we do know that this is a book about you. And it's an exciting book that teaches us about how everything is going to unfold. First of all, in your timetable, when you want it to be. And second of all, exactly how you want it to be. And Father, we take such great comfort in, in knowing that... Uh, You've got it all under control. And we pray this morning that if there's anyone who doesn't have their spiritual life in order, they're still trying to figure this out and wondering, am I saved? Do I know Christ? We've learned today here in this passage, we've been reminded that He is coming. The question is, am I ready for Him to come back? Is my house in order? Father, maybe someone today would come and say, I need to commit my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Could you tell me how to be saved? 
Tell me how that I can become a Christian and know that I have eternal life. Maybe someone else, Father, would say, you know, I know that, that the church is not just a building on the corner, but the church is described in Scripture as the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that I need to be a part of the church. And I believe that you're calling me right here to this place, to this church, in order to serve you and to be fed the Word of God and to have fellowship with other believers. Father, maybe this morning you would draw someone to make that commitment. Maybe there are others, Father, that would say, Lord, I can live days, even weeks in my life and not even think about your return. It's as though it's just on the back burner somewhere and I don't even think about it much. Father, maybe someone today would just come and kneel at the altar and say, Lord, help me be ever mindful of your return. Whatever the needs are, Father, in this place today, and I know there are many, we pray that you would draw persons unto you, under yourself and to a closer walk with you. We pray all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand together this morning and sing these verses of invitation, won't you come as we sing?